Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... With Wharton Interactive, we're able to bring to life the gray zone of decision-making. We're able to really bring to life that there are trade-offs when you are deciding to do one thing versus another, or that you don't have to go all in with one decision versus another. And so that that's really where we are. We're, that's where the realism of the interactive experience comes to life. And you're not doing a traditional business simulation where you're entering you know, static numbers into a decision screen and hitting enter and the year artificially moves forward after calculation under the hood is happening. That's not the way that decision-making works and therefore that's not the way interactive learning should work either. Hey, it's Maria and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today is a serious games expert and established thought leader in the educational technology field. She is fueled by a passion to find and develop innovative ways to make every learning environment interactive, engaging and learner-centered. After completing her bachelor's in international studies, she spent a decade as an entrepreneur when she founded two tech startups that built global CRM, product development, productivity management and financial systems. She then decided to disrupt herself and become the IT director in a large enterprise where she developed further business acumen and operational excellence while leveraging and expanding her expertise in technology. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Sarah Toms, executive director and co-founder of Wharton Interactive, a new initiative at the Wharton School that builds interactive learning platforms and marketplaces. Sarah joined the Wharton School as the ID Director of the Learning Lab in 2013 when she was hired to lead the team into a new era. Together they explored new approaches to learning through the development of serious games, simulations and interactive programs. During this time, Sarah co-founded an open-source simulation framework called Simple Thought World that is nothing we've seen before. During our discussion, you will learn about the Alternate Reality Courseware, a gaming engine providing experiential learning through a realistic virtual experience. Sarah also talks about Idea Machine, an innovative learning platform that lets instructors quickly and easily create engaging social communities around key questions and topics. We also discuss the startup game and the Saturn Parable, examples of the handful of games they have been developing at Wharton Interactive. Sarah is the co-author of the Customer Centricity Playbook that won the Digital Book Awards 2019 Best Business Book. She is also dedicated to supporting women and girls in the technology field through her work with the Women in Tech Summit and TechGirls.org. Join me in this insightful conversation with a role model who aspires to be known as a person who stepped into education and fiercely innovated. 
hello, Sarah. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hi, Maria. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. When you think of your childhood, Sarah, what has been the most influential uh, learning experience for you? That is such an interesting question, Maria. So first of all, I've never shared on a podcast my learning journey, so to speak. So I have lived in many different countries, uh, including being born in Malawi. Uh, I grew up in Malaysia, Swaziland, England, and then came to the U.S. in high school. So for me, my story really is that I have experienced many flavors of education, and I've been able to have a first-hand look at what approaches worked and, and the differences between the, the various approaches to education uh, country by country where I was living. So that included being in, a, in Swaziland when apartheid was happening next door. Um, my parents actually had to pull me out of school in Swaziland because we were supporting, obviously, the anti-apartheid that was happening. And um, that meant that a lot of the expat kids ended up being schooled in uh, garages for a couple of years because the black teachers in Swaziland were not teaching the the white kids. So we, you know, got to experience and really see what was happening country by country with that respect. Wow! And you've seen uh, homeschooling or learning from home and other like more uh, what I call emergency kind of situations. It was truly an emergency situation. So similar to what we're experiencing here where uh, parents are having to educate their kids, this is exactly what happened with the expat families back in the 80s, the early 80s when I was going through school in Swaziland. The families all got together and of course they were very supportive of the anti-apartheid protests that were happening uh, at every level in Swaziland uh, with respect to what was happening in the neighboring country. And uh, it did mean that we, you know, the families bandied together and created a network of schools that were held in garages. So I was schooled in one of our friends' garages for uh, close to two years. And it was, I was the youngest, you know, I was about five, six years old. And uh, the ages in that quote unquote garage school went all the way up to eight, nine years old. Very interesting time. Mm -hmm. How was it for you when you when you went back to school compared to, you know, being schooled uh, in a garage? It was interesting. So what ended up happening was another school was created and it was inclusive. Uh, you know, we had many of the Swazi kids join the school as well. So it was a private school and it was a transition uh, because it was far more organic, a lot more free play. Uh, when obviously we were being educated in the garage and we went to a more standard formal curriculum when we moved into school. But uh, it wasn't long after that, actually, that uh, we left Swaziland and then uh, moved to Manchester, England, where my parents did their graduate work. So I only got to experience just a little bit. And then I was doing a whole new transition, which was to a new culture as well. Mm -hmm. And as you were traveling and... Uh getting all these different educational experiences, what did you want to, to be when you grew up? What uh, did you like to study and learn? 
I wanted to be an astronaut or an astronomer. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, I was uh, I was just fascinated with science and what was happening, you know, beyond our planet. Uh, so that was sort of uh, when I was younger, you know, probably around 11, 12 years old. As I moved into college, my college degrees are actually in international relations and agriculture. Uh, so I was very interested in thinking about sustainability, sustainable development, and moving back potentially to uh, some of the countries where I grew up and helping to have an effect on uh, sustainability. That didn't end up happening. <laughs> my journey, you know, coming out of college, I uh, one of my very good friends uh, wanted me to help him start a technology startup. So I had no technology background and started that journey with him. And so was a co-founder of a technology company during the dot-com, uh, the beginning of the dot-com boom, and very quickly fell in love with the potential of technology and where you can go with, you know, leveraging technology. And so that's really where my journey has been, that trajectory. And Wonderfully, I'm I'm starting to return back to sustainability, and I'm starting to be able to see the effect of what we're developing in the education space, and and you know potentially bringing that across the digital divide. So I'm really happy to see sort of my trajectory curve back to where I started coming out of college in the mid '90s. Mm -hmm. You were uh, an entrepreneur, founder, co-founder for over a decade. What uh, what were the big learnings? Uh, for you during this time? So many. So number one, uh, I was really, I started um, being on more of the business side and then quickly moved into technology. So quickly learned how to be a programmer, learned systems administration, service support, all those uh, different elements. So really the life cycle of technology my company was really positioned in working with corporations and education in understanding workflow and how to digitize what was you know what was being done on paper and through fax machines and uh, email in the very beginning and then very quickly moving into more web-based uh, systems so my companies would work on building those web-based systems and they were very much bespoke for the company so we worked with chemical corporations we helped do the end-to-end -end life cycle and development of, you know, different surfactants. In pharma, I worked in a number of global CRM systems. And then in education, we worked in a lot of the training and development of teachers, so building large-scale systems that help to manage the learning and development of the teachers in school districts in Pennsylvania. So, Sarah, you had very early on, through your entrepreneurial path, you had exposure to like systems and uh, running a, a company, but also different kinds like of industries or segments. So very broad perspective. Yeah, no, I, it was very interesting to me yesterday. I happened to have a conversation with um, somebody who's just beginning her journey. She just graduated from Duke and is going to work as a consultant and her passion is in education. And she really questioned whether she should be going and working in industry as her first step. And I actually encouraged her to do so. And the reason why is I, I think that education sometimes suffers from the fact that a lot of folks who are working in the education field come here into this field early on and they stay because it's a great place to be. And one of the problems is, is that they're not getting exposure to other 
mindsets, other approaches, other ways of solving problems that may come from other industries and looking at those different patterns and solutions and seeing how they can be adapted into the education system. So I actually feel that a lot of the diversity of my background with respect to the industries I've been exposed to is why when I sit down and try to solve a problem in education, I'm able to pull from a very diverse tool set very diverse expertise with that respect. I would love to know about the fork in the road, if there was one, that took you from uh, being a founder and co-founder to working at uh, Almac? Absolutely. So one of the things with being a founder is keeping your skills sharp and also feeling like you are uh, able to work on novel projects and and things like that. And so had a very successful company, but didn't feel like I was having new problems coming to me. I felt like each project was looking very similar and I sort of knew exactly what was gonna need to happen. And I wasn't really growing myself. And so one of my customers, uh, Almac actually offered me a position and they were on a quick trajectory, growth trajectory. And they had so much happening with respect to technology and the challenges that they were facing. And so when they offered me a position, of course, it was a difficult choice, uh, but I felt that it was the right choice at that particular stage of my career. And I'm really glad I did. When I joined Almac, I joined as a senior developer. I was working on a lot of the different systems. I was able to be exposed to a wide range of new technologies that um, I wasn't able to sort of roll up my sleeves and learn necessarily as an entrepreneur, because as an entrepreneur, you're keeping the lights on, you're keeping your staff paid. There's just so much to do. This really gave me some breathing room in my career to do uh, some professional development. And then midway through my career there, I was able to move into a new position where I led the roadmap for ITIL, I-T-I-L. And that has actually shaped how I look at technology even today. So this is a full lifecycle approach to how you manage IT services. And it really is about positioning IT in line and in partnership with the business stakeholders and with the mission of what the business is trying to do which may today sound like uh, no big deal, but back in the early 2000s, it really was sort of a technology sat off to the side of the business and the business would sort of grudgingly come to the technologist and ask for support or help. And it was a very transactional relationship and was not really that integrated. And what IDLE really did was bring everybody together at the same table, working on the same KPIs, working towards the same goals, and really allowed technology to move from the back of the bus to the front of the bus where it really should be. Mm-hmm. I come from a very different segment, not IT, it's more specialty chemicals. Of course, IT is part of that, is the platform you know we operate on, but I also experienced the same thing with technology. It was like technology and then the rest of the business. And it was probably late 2000 in the in the specialty chemical uh, uh, industry that I was that we started developing more of an integrated system. The technology is actually in the center of everything else, and it was part of the KPIs and basically running the business. There were like technology initiatives, there were business initiatives. Exactly, and it's really understanding that you need to manage technology and use more of a life cycle approach to that, you know, continuously coming back and assessing, you know, does this piece of technology or or the way we're leveraging it still fit 
you know, the mission of the business and, and where we're going. So that, that was a, a, a sea change shift in me that happened with respect to my relationship and my understanding of technology and business. And I never would have had that if I hadn't sort of hit pause on my entrepreneurial journey and gone and worked in an industry and been an employee in a company. So I was really fortunate to have that experience. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013, you joined the Wharton School as the IT director. How did this move come about? This move came about, again, um, you know, I had been with Almac and was very fortunate to be there for a number of years and uh, had an evolving role there and came to a point again in my career where I was challenged daily, but I was seeing sort of a rinse and repeat of those challenges and needing to sort of shift and shake myself up a bit and and move into an experience that was completely new, you know, and really challenging again for me. When I learned about the Learning Lab position, it just seemed to really bring me back to my entrepreneurial days where this amazing team had sort of been, had its heyday already, had been put on mothballs. And the Wharton School knew that there was tremendous potential in the Learning Lab, but was looking for a change agent to really take that team and bring it back into a new era. And so I just was really excited to, to not only work in a new sphere of technology, but start to move into one where I would be challenged intellectually, one where I would be able to partner with thought leaders, you know, in the way of our faculty. These are world leading minds who are just doing some incredible work and really thinking about how we bring their thought leadership to life in games, in simulations and in other pedagogy. Um, and so, you know, my first day joining the Wharton School, my team of developers had all been assigned to other projects. Uh, so <laughs> they were working on other teams and other things. And so step one was like, okay, finish up that, you know, those sprints and then I need you back. And then really just being given a clear path by our leadership, you know, in our CIO and my senior director uh, at the time, to say, you know, Sarah, we hired you because we don't really know what the answers are, you know? And so they, they gave me a wide lane to sort of experiment and to see and to start to um, reinvigorate the partnerships with our Wharton faculty. And I'm incredibly proud of what, you know, we were able to accomplish. So the five years that I was uh, leading that team, we co-invented, me and the team, something called Simple, S-I-M-P-L.world, which is a open source simulation framework. It's the first and only one of its kind. One of the things I recognized in that space is there's just so many barriers of entry into creating hyper-realistic experiences where you can move the learners into the driver's seat, you know, and out of that passive place where they're kind of just listening to lectures. And one of them is the expense of the simulation platforms. The commercial simulation platforms are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to adopt and to develop on. And, you know, I'd kind of just had enough. And so me and my team decided to develop our own open source version. Also, over the course of that five years, we were able to expand the adoption of Wharton's first-in-class simulations that we, as we were developing them, we saw uh, worldwide adoption, so hundreds of universities across the globe and tens of thousands of students now play Wharton simulations in their classes. And then we also were able to increase the penetration and usage of 
interactive learning at the Wharton School. So when I started at Wharton, we had about 3,000 student plays a year. By the time I stepped away from being the director of the learning lab, we were over 20,000 student plays a year. So just lots and lots of activity. And it was all because, you know, the potential was there. It's just there wasn't yet somebody really paying attention to kind of where all the opportunities were and how we could kind of flow in and, and start to provide what everybody needed. You know, the Wharton faculty and the Wharton students really were looking for what the learning lab had. Mm-hmm. You already uh, talked about interactive learning. What was the path or the steps that led you to co-founding Wharton Interactive in 2018? That is, uh, so as I mentioned, uh, partnerships with Wharton faculty. So a very early on partnership that I had was working with Professor Ethan Mollick. So he is amazing. He is a visionary. He has been passionate about bringing different game play dynamics into education, really thinking about how education can be reinvented and how that intersection between gaming and uh, learning you know, really exploring that intersection more. So he and I worked on the startup game with one of an, it was an early project we worked on together, really got along well. He also has an entrepreneurial background. So we speak the same language. We work very similarly, but our skill sets complement each other very well. You know, so where he's got the thought leadership and the experience, and he really has been somebody who has, has been a great teacher of mine in the serious game space. I could bring technology chops to the table and really how we digitize and move these ideas into actual fully fledged products. And so we worked on the startup game uh, first together, which, uh, as I mentioned, is one of those games that's now played by tens of thousands of students all over the world in many, many uh, hundreds of different classes. And uh, then we started to work on a number of other ideas together. And so we are really, the two of us, very entrepreneurial in how we work together in this space. So we created Idea Machine version one, which is a way that faculty can ask questions of their students, and then the students can answer those questions and then are able to see all of the different ideas of those, the rest of their class, they can interact in this closed social community. And for us, what we loved about Idea Machine is that it's a way to democratize the classroom. You know, in classes, we know about 20% of students are raising their hands and engaging, but we also know that 100% of students want to. And so this really allows the whole voice of that learning community, that learning ecosystem in the class to come to life and to really see all the divergent ideas that are at play with respect to the students. So Idea Machine was one idea. And then um, Alternate Reality Courseware Generation One, or it's called Looking Glass, was our other idea. And so for five years, we were really incubating and working and, and thousands and thousands of Wharton students got to experience these two platforms. And we got to a point where we said, you know, we've now incubated these ideas enough. It's time for us to bring these ideas to the world. And so that was the beginning of Wharton Interactive. Uh, The two of us co-founded Wharton Interactive in 2018. We've been working on Generation 2 of Idea Machine, ARC, and then also a more adaptive marketplace that really goes in step with the educators and learners who are coming to work with us 
We've had incredible partnership and support from our school and from our CIO every step of the way. And so, yeah, that, that, that's really the, the origin story of Wharton Interactive. Mm -hmm. And your personal mission, which I think is very aligned with uh, Wharton Interactive, is to modernize, transform and democratize education. It is. Yeah. And this just going back to my story, you know, I was just reflecting on step by step, you know, there were there have been times where I have really struggled as a learner, um, you know, especially uh, as I was moving from culture to culture and learning culture to learning culture, you know, when you look at how the, the British educate and the Americans educate, it's so vastly different. And then recognizing that there's so much good work that can be done uh, with respect to modernizing our approaches to education. So what I mean by that is when I moved from England, I had never taken a multiple choice test. And, and they still to this day, I, I do very badly on them because when I'm looking at the questions and the answers, I'm just, my mind does not think in those sort of binary ways of right and wrong. And so I've always struggled. And so that's where I'm really proud of is that with Wharton Interactive, we're able to bring to life the gray zone of decision-making. We're able to really bring to life that there are trade-offs when you are deciding to do one thing versus another, or that you don't have to go all in with one decision versus another. And so that that's really where we are. We're, that's where the realism of the interactive experience comes to life. And you're not doing a traditional business simulation where you're entering you know, static numbers into a decision screen and hitting enter and the year artificially moves forward after a calculation under the hood is happening. That's not the way that decision-making works. And therefore that's not the way interactive learning should work either. Mm -hmm. Sarah, technology has evolved and also access. I mean, compared to 20 years ago, we have so much more access to education and educational resources and tools. What is the part that you are trying to, I guess, modernize and also democratize? Which aspect? So many. So one aspect is recognizing that there is vast heterogeneity in the students that come and learn. And what I mean by that is they may have already done an amount of self-teaching themselves. When you look at YouTube and other uh, offerings, uh, Khan Academy, you know, where are your students with respect to what you're actually teaching and how do you challenge them appropriately given what they already know? If you need to bring students along with you and scaffold them into a specific subject matter and give them opportunities to practice and repractice until they've gained mastery, versus those students who already have that mastery. And so that's one area where education, we're not there yet. You know, we are way too much in this one size fits all. We are way too much in this one direction, kind of the, the information flowing from faculty to students. What we need to be better at is really understanding how we fine tune and right size the educational experience to the learner and also allow them more pathways where they can start to move into the areas where they're really fascinated and interested and engaged so that they can go deeper and go, go wider in specific subject matters. So, you know, so personalization is one area. Um, the other area is recognizing that we have this social contract in higher ed with our communities and what we're offering with respect to education. And up until now, it's not universally accessible, but that's kind of an artificial barrier 
to allowing more folks in, especially because so much education can be delivered online um, and in really wonderful ways. So thinking about how we start to increase our touch points with learners across the globe and not being um, so restrictive, I think is another area. So that, that to me is when we're thinking about democratizing education and making education more personalized. So when we look at ARC, the alternate reality courseware, talk to us about uh, like how do you build it and how do you make sure that you incorporate and address all the aspects that you talked about? Absolutely. So alternate reality courseware is our gaming platform that allows us to really engage with learners through a narrative. And if you think about it, we're all engaged in our day-to-day in a narrative. You know, this is the, the conversations we're having with our team, the conversations we're having with our bosses, how we're thinking about, you know, where we're interacting within our, you know, our day jobs, the problems we're having to solve, and then thinking about um, those characters that we interact with and sort of their their frame of information and their worldview and what they're trying to get from you with, it may be a challenge, it may be they need information, et cetera, et cetera. So at the core, Alternate Reality Courseware is a gaming engine that leverages interactive fiction principles and role-playing games. So when you think about those, you're, you're interacting with a story, you're interacting with characters and scenarios, and that story is really unfolding over time. So one issue we do have with a lot of serious games is a lot of them are positioned to be just a class in length, which doesn't let you get fully immersed into the world and understanding all the nuances that might be happening in that world. And so when you come into the game, you're immersed into the world and the gameplay and the characters, the non-player characters start to come to life and you're starting to interact with them. And then in some games, we're also able to overlay team dynamics. So you've got real learners who are also assuming roles within the game as well. And you're you're really, so for example, entrepreneurship, you're able to run a startup in real time over the course of weeks and months, which gives you an inception experience of what it's like to work with all the different areas of a startup from protecting your IP, to working with early customers, to developing a product line, to having to hire technologists, to doing pitches to potential investors and crowd starter campaigns, et cetera. There's so many things you're having to prioritize when you walk into a startup. What if you have that experience and then overlaid upon that experience, we're able to see how you performed and give you adaptive feedback and show you the best practices and help reinforce the behaviors that you, where you performed really well and help to correct you where you could have done better. That really, in essence, is what ARC provides. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm an educator, faculty, and I'm listening to that and I'm very interested in learning more of how to use it, do you provide specific games like the startup game you talked about? And how much room do you leave for the educator to create their own scenarios? So where we are right now in the development of ARC, so first of all, there is nothing like this that exists in the world. So we are quite literally not just developing the technology, but also developing the frameworks, the best practice, you know, from the standpoint of pedagogy, but also a game studio 
that supports all of that development. You know, so we at Wharton Interactive, we're, we're doing a lot of building right now. We do have a few dozen games in our pipeline that we are in the process of working through discovery and then will be, you know, moved into actually being uh, fully built out. And so what we have for our educators is by the end of the summer, they will be able to come to our marketplace and purchase our games. And then there will be an ability for them to configure those games in a way that makes sense for what they're actually trying to teach, especially from the standpoint out of the gate, it will be mainly for folks in the business education realm. Next, though, we are highly interested in thinking about onboarding educators and thought leaders from beyond the business education offerings and uh, also from beyond the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. We're just not quite ready yet. So this would be more of an open source, community-based kind of network? Um, from the standpoint of ARC, it's not so much a open source network. This, what we're talking about is more like a publishing platform for authors and then other educators can adopt what's been created by these game authors and adopt these games into their class so their, their learners can experience them for themselves. Mm-hmm. How do you see the role of the educator? Within the ARC experience, uh, we have ways that the educator can actually interface with the learners. Number one, they can assume some of the non-player characters and actually role play with the students. So for example, in our entrepreneurship flavor of the game, they could assume the role of one of the customers and actually have a back and forth dialogue with the uh, players within the game and really have kind of a, a firsthand experience of what it might be like negotiating with your early customers in the game. So that's sort of one e- example of how uh, educators can step in and, and interact with an ARC. The second way is they can also step in and be part of the analysis and assessment of the players. So we do have automated, personalized, Uh, feedback coming to the players, but we can also put stops in the game or interrupts in the game where the faculty can step in and the TAs as well, perform some assessment and then and then push feedback that they have created back to the players within the gaming interface. Mm-hmm. Very good. What are the main skills uh, the students are learning? You already talked about they work on teams. So teamwork is one of them. What about other skills? So one of the things that we really pride ourselves with is thinking about what all the different meta skills are that students need to think about when they're going through an experience. So this may be more on different strategic thinking. Uh, these are these are skills that um, go across the different disciplines. You know, communication and their teamwork, their metacognitive skills, etc. So that's at the high level. We, we have a framework for thinking about, you know, what exactly the student is going to be experiencing with, you know, with respect to those meta skills. And then the next level down is with respect to the discipline that the game is speaking to. So is it entrepreneurship? Is it innovation? Is it, you know, social, emotional intelligence, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we will have a full set of learning objectives that sit within the discipline or disciplines as well. So we have a couple of different levels uh, with that respect. Mm-hmm. 
I've heard you and your uh, co-founder talk about also that students become self-directed, lifelong learners. Can you help me understand how this happens after their experience with ARC? What we're building in the Wharton Interactive Marketplace is once you come in and start to um, interact with us on a game level, we now are starting to think about your learning journey. And from that standpoint, our relationship with you as a learner doesn't end when the game ends. So as new thought leadership, as new best practices start to surface with respect to what you experienced in the game, and maybe you experienced it a year ago or two years ago, we'll be providing you that information now that you're part of our learning community. We'll also be providing um, reassessment. So when you think about, especially at the meta skill level, things that you maybe improved upon when you were in the game, coming back six months later, a year later, now how are you doing? And if there are areas where you're starting to atrophy a bit, you know, these may be meta skills that you haven't used. And so when you don't use a skill, they start to atrophy a bit. We can give you opportunities within Wharton Interactive to actually come in and repractice uh, so you keep those skills sharp. Very nice. Perhaps that's a good time now to talk about a game that also is available this summer, the, the Saturn Parable. Yeah, so the Saturn Parable, uh, we are making it available to our high school students. And this is one uh, which is going to be re running in July and is basically a two-day experience. So it's two, three-hour chunks of time where you are stepping into an expedition. It's a competitive expedition. Uh, you are going to assume a role. Uh, maybe you are, an, you are a geologist, maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're an executive, et cetera. Maybe you're from the press and you're really coming out of hypersleep and you're close to your destination. And you are racing two other ships to a Saturn moon where you are uh, hoping to gain the water rights. You know, this is where we're looking at the colonization of our solar system. And really what's happening in this experience is students are getting exposed to a number of different learning objectives. Learning objectives with respect to leadership and, and teamwork skills, also understanding how to lead in a crisis and also competitive strategy. Uh, so all of that's coming to life within this six our experience uh, over the course of two days. And do you have uh, advisors or instructors to, to guide the students through the process or all this happening online and basically the technology does all the work? A little bit of both. So first of all, students are going to be uh, engaged within the ARC gaming platform, number one. And number two, my co-founder, Ethan Mollick, he is the author of the game, he is also going to be delivering lectures. And number three, we do a number of surveys across the experience where we're actually pulling information from the learners with respect to their learning journey. And at the end of the experience, providing them with a 360 report on how they performed, which skills they're really strong in, and which areas we, we feel might need improvement and some resources to help them improve. Mm-hmm. Is the design of the game different because now you are uh, targeting high school students versus higher ed college students? Absolutely. So one of the things we've done with the game is we have 
simplified it in areas. Uh, so there's a version of this game that's played by executives. There's also a version that's played by MBA students. So we have provided more scaffolding for the students with respect to the fact that they are high school. They may not have been exposed to some of the concepts. We're making sure that they also are having an experience that is more tuned to where they are in their, their journey with respect to being a learner. Mm-hmm. With the Word on Interactive framework and platform, do you want to serve more higher ed, K-12? Do you have all of them or do you have one focus more than the other? It really depends on the platform and on the gaming experience itself. So number one, I would say our approach and what we're bringing to education, I could see this being universally adopted and you know accessible over time. But I also know that in order for us to be the best that we can be, we need to get what we're doing right with uh, certain segments of learners. So, you know, MBAs, that's something that, you know, Ethan and I and the team have really been focused on uh, perfecting over the course of the last five years. And now as we're starting to build the team, we are working on variations that do work in the executive education and lifelong learning space and also do serve the high school audience as well. Um, But I would say that, you know, right now, our big interest is in number one, thinking about higher ed and executive lifelong learning. And number two, thinking about how we move, you know, out of the business bubble, the business education bubble into the other disciplines. Mm -hmm. And uh, are these now available to, I guess, institutions or corporations or schools or also individuals might, might have access to the courseware? Exactly. So we will be launching our fully accessible marketplace at the end of the summer. And there will be two ways that you can engage with Wharton Interactive. One is as an individual learner where we will have games that are available where you can gain a certificate or an advanced certificate by going through our our games. And we are going to be launching with our entrepreneurship games first uh, with others to follow afterwards. And the second way to interact with us is if you are an educator interested in bringing the best in breed interactive education into your class, uh, you would go through a very quick verified educator process with my team. And once you become a verified educator, you would have access to our teaching materials, teaching notes, and also be able to adopt our interactive pedagogies and uh, share those with, with your students. And that's wonderful to hear because many students, as we know now, because three months ago, things started to change. And now many students are considering a gap year. Many people are, you know, out of work. So it's an opportunity to continue to learn and continue to build skills and experiences, even though we might not be at, you know, at a college that we thought we were going to be or at a corporation that we thought we were going to be working at. So it's a good time to have uh, like this kind of options available for educators and for individuals who want to learn. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, the pandemic. I'm sure you have been talking about it a lot. I'm interested in uh, your thoughts about the new gaps or new opportunities that um, we are now aware of because of the pandemic that we did not consider, let's say, back in January, if there are any. 
I, I think there are a lot. I think um, a lot of educational institutions and educators themselves are on a steep learning curve of, you know, what it means to try to provide the best learning environments in a way that remains interactive, that uh, has the learners in mind, that isn't just, you know, uh, educators sort of recording themselves and delivering these very one-dimensional uh, lectures. You know, how do you really provide ways for your learners to roll up their sleeves and, um, and, and get to know that learning content in a more meaningful way? I do have concerns. I'm just going to say them. Um, I've seen institution after institution, including my own, think that we can deliver hybrid learning. You know, you know, it seems that social distancing is really pushing us to want to be able to retain that campus experience and bring a smaller percentage of learners into the classroom with the, you know, with the faculty, and then the rest of the learners are coming through. Blue jeans or Zoom or whatever, mm-hmm. and I I worry I worry that you know it's it's incredibly challenging for an educator to be able to multitask and teach to learners who are coming in via Zoom and learners who are sitting there physically in the classroom at the same time. I personally don't believe it's possible. Um, I think that you're degrading both experiences rather than trying to just provide one really really well. And I think that we also we have work to do to actually um, study the efficacy of you know this new paradigm. You know, even as we think about moving here in the U.S. as we're moving into the fall, a lot of schools are cu- you know cutting their fall semester short or moving you know the the second half of their fall semester you know into the online. We have a lot of work to do, given the fact that you know this this pandemic is it's not going to be coming to an end anytime soon. So making sure that the high quality levels are maintained for our learners and our educators. When I first heard you talk during the Ed Week, you talked about the five pillars that you have, the technology, assessment, process, strategy, design, and then in the center of that, you have culture. So when an educator or faculty member thinks of culture, what do they need to keep in mind? They need to keep in mind that when we're doing in-person, there's a certain social contract in place. It's one of the reasons why companies invest so much in having their staff fly to be in-person with one another. When you're in-person with your colleagues and when you're in-person with your learners, you build a trust much quicker than if you're doing this all through an online environment. And so, there, there is a, a culture within your classroom that you have a responsibility to build. And if it is going to be online, you need to think about how you do that. So such as how do you do the, so, you know, the, the icebreakers, you know, are there creative ways that at the beginning of your uh, semester, you can think about starting to build the connections and build the relationships, not just with you and your learners, but between your learners as well, or amongst your learners. So, You know, can you implement some creative icebreakers, for example, that would help that? Um, Also, when you think about um, the uh, social emotional security, um, uh, the sense of, you know, that folks can raise their hand, ask questions, feel safe, you know, like they're in a safe place where um, they can do that. 
that is the responsibility of the educator to figure out how they're building that psychological safety within the classroom as well, so that that social contract of learner to educator and vice versa can continue. So you are involved in Women in Tech and techgirls.org. What role do you see yourself playing in, uh, in these communities? There, there are a few roles that me personally that I play um, in the women in technology uh, communities and the girls in technology. Number one, you know, without sounding like I'm tooting my own horn, I'm a role model. You know, I have had an incredibly successful career that has spanned over two decades in the technology field. It's a career which has been incredibly creative. It's one where I've been able to um, develop ideas, create award-winning teams, bring and see things come to life that literally started as sketches in a notebook on my desk, you know? So I think we have a, a problem in the technology field. We don't do a very good job marketing to young women and young girls uh, when they are at that point of thinking about what a career in technology might mean to them. I think a lot of girls see it as being a career where they'll be sitting in a cubicle with their head down and just coding for eight hours straight a day and not interacting socially. And it's not. And so what's been really wonderful for me is when I start to tell my story of where I've been able to go and what my day looks like in this, you know, this educational technology field, it really you start to see the lights go on in a lot of uh, young girls' eyes. Um, so just providing that role model uh, has been really wonderful. And then I've also worked with a number of women who aren't in technology. They may even be in their 40s or early 50s, and they've always kind of looked at technology from the outside and wondered if there's a pathway for them to come into this field. And that's another role that I play. You know, I'm a coach. I'm a an advocate and a mentor um, in helping women figure out ways into this field and also advocating for themselves and realizing that there's no time like the present. And there truly are very few barriers for getting into this field. There's so much available online. And if you get somebody in your corner, kind of like me, who's willing to give you a, a nice strong nudge, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then that, that's something that I'm, I'm willing to do and, and I do quite frequently. Beautiful. And that brings me to my favorite question. What is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? I, I'd like to be seen as somebody who was willing to step into education and fearlessly innovate and, and, and change and, and modernize what we know education to be. You know, maybe one day there'll be a Wikipedia page and I'll be, you know, in the footnotes somewhere. But I'd like to be part of that story um, of the modernization of education. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was uh, so insightful. I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will uh, love listening to your story and uh, learning more about your work at the Wharton Interactive. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure, Maria. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning from Sarah Toms and you are intrigued by her work at Wharton Interactive. 
Now I want to share with you my reflections on a couple of things that we don't talk much about. First, it was Sarah's diverse background growing up and experiencing a variety of educational systems that ignited her passion to find and develop innovative ways to make every learning environment active, engaging, more meaningful and learner-centered. Her ability to transform and modernize experiential learning is rooted in her deep expertise in technology and business that she acquired while building educational programs and CRM systems as a startup founder and corporate employee for over two decades. Sarah's journey before joining the Wharton School not only prepared her well, but also enabled her to disrupt education in ways that those who've been in the education field for their entire career might not have been able to do. The second point is about how Sarah made another move that we rarely see. She hit pause on her entrepreneurial journey after a decade to join a large corporation because she wanted to continue to expand her skill set and join a faster business growth trajectory. That made me think of my own corporate experience in technology, innovation and marketing. I can also attest to the fact that a large enterprise offers an excellent environment to develop business acumen and operational excellence while deepening our understanding in technology lifecycle and systems change. If you aspire to create change in education, it might be worth considering getting diverse experience not only in a variety of education systems, but also in business and technology before you step into education. This path will help you broaden your perspective and develop essential skills that will enable you to innovate and make an impact in the education field. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.